Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Classic Jake. Yo. There he is. How are you, my brother? Well, I've been better. Yeah. Terrible day. Terrible time to be in New York and America, really. I can imagine. I saw a video on your Instagram feed from last night. Now, as we're talking, it is Sunday the 31st of May. Uh, I'll be putting this out on Thursday the 4th of June, um, just to give people a bit of a time period idea. But you were out on the streets last night, and there's a lot of, understandably so, uprising and anger and protesting yeah man there's a lot of protesting and the media is classifying it as rioting uh and there's a little bit of that obviously um but it's so skewed i was out there for four hours last night and i saw dude so many fucking unprovoked acts of aggression by the police force on the protesters um and it's it's been draining. I mean, I was I was out till two o'clock in the morning last night. Barely slept. Woke up. Looked at the news and seeing what the media focuses on is super draining. And seeing people say like, seeing people blame the protesters for any of this 
is is shocking after seeing what I saw with my own eyes. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to encourage the people I know and my friends to get out there and see it for themselves. And uh, I just kept keep getting people telling me to be safe and stay safe. And it's like, well, we're out there protesting for the people who don't have that option. Yeah. You know, for people yeah. who can't stay safe because they're black people in America. Uh, and they're targeted by police officers. And I go out there and just, I was mostly silently protesting, just standing, watching. And as you saw in the videos I posted, the police are just pushing into groups of people. And as soon as one person reacts, they grab them and beat them. Um, uh, I've seen in the news over here as well, we're obviously only getting, you know, a fraction of what's going on over there. But all we seem to see and hear and read about over here is next thing is the National Guard are coming in and Trump's like, you know, re reacting to it as a, you know, like he usually does, like a big hot headed bullywood saying this is my physical threat in retaliation ra rather than let's look at why these people are angry and in pain. Um, and it's crazy because I just I just transcribed an interview the other day for my book with Be Real, and he's talking about the LA riots and that, which is you know 29 years ago now. And in many ways, what's just happened with George Floyd is even worse because at least Rodney King survived. He lived. He got a brutal beating, but he survived. And George Floyd did not. And his crime, if I'm correct in thinking this, is he just went to pay for an item in a local deli with a counterfeit $20 bill. And that was his crime. That's right. right. Yep. And, and unfortunately, George Floyd's just the latest in a long string. Of course. Of, of victims. And it's, you know, it's kind of the perfect timing. It's like there's 40 million people out of work in America. The government isn't doing anything to help us. They sent us all a, a $1,200 check, um, you know, which is, which is laughable. Uh, by most people's standards, and there's no leadership, no relief on the horizon. There's a hot summer coming, and people have just fucking had enough. Finally, um, and you know, it the the spirit of the uprising is fucking wonderful to see. But I'm I'm just I'm heartbroken that the media is going to portray it in a way that causes more divide rather than unity. Um, but I'm going to keep going out there, and I'm going to keep doing whatever I can do and you know maybe it's not enough but it's it's all I can do and that's what I'm going to focus on it's, you know every voice needs to be heard so I love that other about than you that, as man, well Jake <laughs> uh, well thank you other than that what a fucking time to be alive huh like, <laughs> like there is any other than that there's you know like yeah if the pandemic don't get you then the uprising will right well, but I tested positive for antibodies last week. Um, there you go. I never went. I was sick as as hell in March, and I never went for a test because the governor kept coming on the news saying, "Unless unless you're in fear for your life, do not come to a hospital." Um, and I wasn't that sick. I wasn't so sick that I feared I was going to die. But I was pretty sure I had the virus, and kept it pretty much to myself because everybody was already on the edge of panic, and I didn't need to start upsetting any of my friends yeah um and the, and the few friends i did mention it to um you know i think everybody was so freaked out that people started telling me what i needed to do <laughs> which was more frustrating um but i just laid on the couch and drank a lot of water for two and a half weeks until i finally started feeling better but it feels really good to know 
that I have the antibodies and that I can be out there in a crowd of protesters and not be worrying about getting sick. And, you know, God forbid I get arrested. You know, they're not socially distancing people in the in the police buses and in the jails. Of course so, not. At least I got that going for me in the immortal words of Bill Murray, the Caddyshack, right? How uh, how was it then? What were the symptoms? Uh, Jesus. Uh, ripping headache, full body aches, like every muscle was aching, as if I had worked at every muscle incredibly toughly for days on end. I, I woke up feeling like I got hit by a truck one day, and it just didn't subside for two weeks. Fever, sweating, nauseous, terrible headaches, weakness, uh, not wanting to eat, not tasting anything, barely smelling anything, um, just general fucking misery. Would you um, say it's the worst thing you've ever experienced in a sickness sense, like a, <laughs> like a, like a, uh, like a physical illness? Was it way up there with the worst of the worst, you know, feelings? Yeah. In 2005, I had mononucleosis and strep throat at the same time. And that lasted six weeks. And I thought I was going to die for a little while during that. But yeah, this was, this was just as bad. Uh, and I had a mild case of it. You know, I can't imagine. I had, I have a couple friends who went to the hospital. Um, man, one friend was on a ventilator for a while. I can't even imagine being so sick that you had to go to the hospital with it. You know, um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, you know, <laughs> it's miserable to even recall and think about. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's um, there's going to be some difficult things that I am going to ask you to recall, Jake, because, you know, you're obviously no stranger to pain of the physical and mental variety. However... Dude, I think, I'll take physical pain all day. Yeah. That, I'm used to. You build up a tolerance, you know? Mental pain and anguish and suffering and depression and anxiety, that's... That's fucking brutal. You can't put a Band-Aid on that. You can't take medicine for that. Well, like me, you're a survivor, though, and you've been to the edge, and you've peered over, and you've very nearly fallen, um, but you're still here, thank whoever. Um, and I would like to, if it's okay with you, just kind of hear about your life and your journey and your story. I want to know, first of all, Jake, if it's cool with you, about your... Because this is an area of your life I know nothing really about, despite the fact that we've been good friends for a few years now. Um, is, you know, your childhood, your upbringing, what was it like growing up? It was challenging. Um, yeah, I grew up lonely and alone with parents who weren't around much. Uh, two very older sisters who had left the house by the time I was seven years old um and i wasn't looked after and uh the product of not being looked after by my parents who just weren't present because they weren't around even physically um i was unfortunately passed around the neighborhood uh, and taken advantage of in all sorts of ways um and yeah, uh, that was my childhood. Um, Are there any happy memories from from the yeah. younger years? Sure, um, I think there's plenty of things I grasped, um, and there's plenty of things I blocked blocked out for a long time. 
Um, but, uh, man. No, not a lot of happiness. To be honest, not a lot. Um, then that's why I, I, I escaped my, my hometown and I moved to California when I was 19. Uh, as soon as I could kind of come up with the money to get away. And then, I, I, I from California, I moved to New York. I think moving to California was a instinctive reaction to just get as far away as I could, uh, yeah. from where I'd grown up and then realized New York was sort of my spiritual home and moved there and then I've only been back very few times once was a few times when my dad started getting sick and died of cancer and then after that to put my mother in a in a uh old age home help move her in where she still resides and uh suffers from dementia and either willingly or unwillingly chooses to not acknowledge anything that I went through as a kid, which I sadly understand um, because I, I don't think she could handle thinking about it. Did you ever reconcile um, with, with either of them, with your mom or your dad? I tried. I tried. Um, But no, not really. Um, uh, anyway, so then I moved to New York. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, New York seems to be where the Jake that I know is is born, if you can put it that way. Um, talk to me I about. I mean, that was it. Was a great place. It's it's the first place where I really started to feel like myself and feel like I was in control of my own life and had my own choices and could be the person that I wanted to be. Um, I was not popular in high school. I was. I tried. I never fit in with a clique. I tried being in punk bands, being a rapper, um, was producing other rappers. Um, music was sort of a, a big outlet for me. What and age? What age in your life did did music come in strong as as a lifeline, as it were? Thirteen when I first got a guitar. Um, and learn, you know, learn to play it very poorly. Um, but then when I, I got a drum machine when I was 14 and a, and a sampler and really took the hip hop. Um, and then when I moved to New York, I, I, I really wanted to get in on the business end of things. I realized like I probably didn't have the talent to make it, <laughs> which <laughs> That's probably a tough, is a light word. That's the um, tough realization, gonna, right? Yeah, kind of. But I also realized there was plenty of things I was good at, so it didn't really bother me. Um, it probably would have bothered me a lot more to have not realized that, gone down that road and played in a lot of shitty bands and just washed out of them with nothing else. Yeah, to, just a lifetime of disappointment. Yeah, and uh, man, I have so many friends who, who that was their life. And yeah. then they ended up just, you know, having no marketable skills at all. But, uh, I got into the live music business and went to work at music venues. I started a record label for a while that I ran with a partner of mine. We we had some cool successes. We put out the Brian Jonestown Massacre, the Mooney Suzuki. Um, we put out a, a album of punk bands doing TV show theme songs, which got all sorts of press and sold, I don't know, 30,000 copies. And the first 10,000 of those were us 
renting a car and going on the warp tour and selling it hand to hand to kids in parking lots for five dollars um amazing you've touched on so many things i'd like to go into in a little bit more detail first uh let's go to which records the record label um brian jones town massacre obviously the dude in that band is quite the figure anybody who's seen (laughs) anybody who's seen the documentary dig will know that he is you know he's larger than life and he can perhaps be a little bit of a handful what was it like working with them at that stage in their career this was like their first nationwide release right was on your label I wouldn't call it nationwide release, but they, because they had put out a bunch of records on Bomp Records, which was a cool label, but we signed them for an EP right before they signed their first major deal with TVT. And so our EP was kind of used to set up their first big release on TVT, um, which was called Strung Out in Heaven. And that was kind of like their breakthrough album to the quote unquote mainstream and our dealings with them were all around the time that that movie was being filmed. And right. we were in a lot of shots of it that never got used. But uh, Andy, the director, was in our office all the time, you know, filming phone calls and stuff that we were on. Um, but to be honest, we didn't have that much dealing with Anton himself. Like my partner Scott and I went to see them. We saw them in Austin. Then we went to see them at CB's and the show ended in a disaster. <laughs> then... We saw them a couple nights later at Coney Island High, and we were trying to talk to Anton and trying to get a record deal done. And Anton said from the stage, after the Seabees gig, that's the night he infamously, like, the manager pulled a gun on him and then stole the van full of their equipment and drove it back to Texas or wherever. Um and left the band stranded in New York, and then they used borrowed gear to play their gig at Coney Island High. And Anton said from the stage that night like if anyone wants to sign me to a record deal i'll sign a contract on a fucking napkin and me and scotty went to multiple atms cash points and got all the money we could i think we came up with about a thousand dollars that night and then gave him a couple more thousand dollars two days later and he literally did sign a contract to do an ep for us an acoustic ep on a napkin amazing uh, at the bar that night it's like you know right place right time and what was he like as a dude? What's his story? Like, what kind of a, a, a handle or a grasp could you get on him as a, as a you know, a figure, Not a creator? Much. I mean, in the dealings we had with him, the in-person dealings was basically that, and then a couple of phone calls, and then he handed off to some manager. Greg Shaw was the guy's name, I remember, um, who I then end up, ended up hearing. Like, things went horribly badly there. Um, but... Yeah, we never, never really had any contact with him after that. It, it, but he seemed like a tortured genius. You know, the guy was just putting out so many records that were great. And, I, yeah, I don't know what it, if what he was going through was based on drugs or mental illness. He called one of his albums, Thank God for Mental Illness. You know, it's not, he's, I'm not saying anything that he hasn't shared publicly, but it seems like that story has had a happy ending and I'm very happy for him. He seems like they play for bigger crowds than ever. Now they keep putting out records, keep putting out great music. He brought some former members back into the fold. Um, so fucking God bless him. God bless Anton a Newcomb. The third. I think that documentary did wonders for the band, perhaps to kind of change the trajectory of their story, shone a light on them in areas where perhaps they weren't being covered. At the moment it came out, it, it seemed like it was a story about the demise of the Brian Jones massacre and the rise of the Dandy Warhols. Yeah. Uh, and it turned out history has been a lot more kind 
of the Brian Jonestown massacre. And I think it showed that the guys from the Dandy Warhols were much more cunning yes. and seeking fame. And Anton was more of a pure, true artist. Yeah, absolutely. And although his life was in shambles during that film, eventually he was able to get his shit together and get the right people around him. And now he's got a great longstanding career. And, uh, you know, he will be the... He will be the winner in the history books of rock and roll as far as that little uh, blur versus oasis thing goes. <laughs> and as you say, good for him. So you get in a van and you're driving all around following the Warp Tour. What year or years uh, is this? 90, 97. And so who's um, on the Warp Tour bill that year? Bouncing Souls, H2O, No Effects, Bad Religion, Rancid. Wow. Um, who wasn't? Kid Rock. <laughs> Your boy. Um yeah, uh, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but yeah, we would go on to be buds. Uh, but I, I, I did watch him a lot of nights on that warp tour, a lot of days because he was playing in the daytime. And um, he was just blowing up around that time, right? Just about starting to. Yeah. Um, Is that where uh, you met a lot of those bands that you're now friends with for the first time? You know, the Rancid Camp, Souls, H2O. Was that a lot of your first encounters with them or would that come later when you're booking shows in New York? I already already knew some of those bands. I knew H2O and the Bouncing Souls and they helped sneak me into a lot of those shows. But uh, all those other bands, I didn't, the bigger bands, I didn't know at that point. But we, we weren't officially on the tour or anything. We were just driving around selling CDs in the parking lot and telling people, hey, we put out this CD ourselves. It's on our own label. And back then, CDs cost about a dollar to manufacture. So we were selling them for $5. When we sold them to a distributor, the distributor only gave us six. Um, and, you know, you sell 100, 200 to a distributor. But we were selling 100 or 200 in a day out on the Warp Tour. And, you know, yeah, it was only five bucks, but we were in a shitty rental car and we were staying, you know, sharing them the cheapest motels we could find. And then we had all sorts of other hustles going on because, you know, we would be the first ones in the parking lot and the cars would show up. People would get out of the cars. We'd hustle these CDs to them and tell them, hey, we drove all the way from New York City. We put this album out ourselves. It's on our own label. We put the whole thing together and people would buy the copies and then they would offer us tickets. Oh, do you have a ticket? Are you going to the show? No, man, I wish I, I wish I had a ticket. And before I knew it, I would have 20 tickets, and then I'd start hustling those tickets to people like, hey, <laughs> do, do you guys have a ticket yet? Do you need a ticket? And I would sell those tickets to make a couple bucks. And I remember me and my buddy had a great arrangement where whoever sold more CDs, whoever sold less CDs had to drive that night to, <laughs> and find the motel. And uh, I always crushed them in sales. And I'll bet you so did. I ended, up, I ended up getting a drink. <laughs> so I, I, I got I got loaded pretty much every day that summer, which was a lot of fun. Um, how so old are you? Just, how old we, are you at that point, Jake? Twenty four. So it's just a good time to be young and a good time to be alive. Exactly, just like today. <laughs> just like today. Yeah, we're still young spring chicks, right? <laughs> yeah. And what year for that bill? I mean, sounds like my dream lineup. Um, and you know, Warp Tour back then, I guess, still would have been like the the old version of it that people talk about fondly, obviously it would have to morph and evolve and change over the years to keep up with current trends and keep appealing to younger audiences. But I guess that is kind of the tail end of that right vintage era. Would you say that's safe to say? Or, or- yeah, I think so. I think all those bands that was right before those bands broke through to become like real headliners on their own. And I think right before big money came into punk rock. Yeah. And those bands realized that they could make a lot more 
going out and touring themselves and paying the opening bands 500 or a thousand bucks and then taking a lion's share of the money for themselves. Um, which I'm not dissing at all, but you know, Kevin Lyman was kind of there at the right time where he could get all those bands at a manageable price, put on this whole thing and have a manageable ticket price for the kids. I mean, tickets, tickets to the Warped Tour back then were like 25 or 30 bucks. Wow. Like, can you imagine that, right? <laughs> and it's like every band you'd want to see from that era on one, you know, one or two stages in a day. That's exactly. amazing. Yeah. And so when yeah, do you, it, when do you start integrating yourself into the live music industry and start building your way up and, and where does that journey start and then how does it evolve? Uh, I had worked at a club called Wetlands when I first got to New York in 94, just working as a, as a, like a office helper, going to the copy shop, making flyers, that kind of stuff. And then the owner took me under his wing. I became like his assistant dealing with a bunch of stuff for him. And then I would DJ all the time and do lights at night. So I would make $10 an hour working in the day. And then I would make $50 to DJ and $50 to do lights. And I learned how to use a light console. Um, and then I would work the box office every now and then. And I did all of that working at night while while running a record label, like in the morning before I would go to work for the owner or days he wouldn't come in, I would do all the record label work, you know, in the wetlands office, just like hustling every which way I could. Uh, but then in 99, I had been hanging around that club so much and got to know all the bands that were playing there in 99. I got the job as a talent buyer, which is the person who books all the bands. And I did that for three years uh and then are you are you young to be doing that is that a kind of an average age below average age you're around 26 is it when you start doing that yes very very young for that job most guys who did that job were like in their 40s and like balding right Um, right right so you were a total kind of not a child prodigy but you know you were one of those oh who's this young kid on the scene kind of guy that people started i guess noticing and paying attention to yeah i had that um, but I also had a, like, I was the same age a lot of these, as a lot of these bands that were playing there. Um, yeah, so right. I was just like a, a, a bro and a bud to them. Yeah. Um, I didn't re- I never really thought of myself as a young kid then. Never even thought of it until you brought that up. Um, <laughs> because I was just always, I was booking my peers. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and certain times I would book older artists, of course, and just, I would be in awe of them. Um, but like the, the regular scene and network of bands that were playing, whether it was, the punk bands or the jam bands or the death metal bands, like whatever it was, it was like, you know, all those touring bands were in their twenties then too. Um, What's the music culture like in New York specifically? Because, you know, historically there's been so many incredible movements. I've still not been to New York, as you know, but a lot of my favorite you know, not just bands, but genres and movements and periods in time were all born in that city from the Velvet Underground all the way through to hip hop and beyond. And when you're working these clubs, obviously you're getting acts from out of town, but what's the sort of the local scene at that point? And who are the, the cutting edge kind of breaking through acts that are, you know, continue, uh, continuing to put New York on the map as you're starting to book club shows? Uh you know, there were, from the punk rock side and, and hardcore, there was, you know, the Bouncing Souls and H2O, I say, were the two of the bigger ones. Like, Sick of It All and Agnostic Front, Murphy's Law, they had all already kind of come along um, and were already big deals. Uh, on the hip-hop end, there was Dead Prez, there was The Roots, 
we did a, a the roots played every Sunday at wetlands for four or five years. Wow. Um, every Sunday they would cut drive up from Philly and it was the roots jam session. And then, and now they're Jimmy Kimmel's house band, right? Yes. Then after two or three years, it changed into the black lily jam session, which was the roots backing all these incredible female artists. Um, and you know, Eminem, Eminem came, we had this weekly thing called lyricist lounge, which was a, like a MC battle basically. And we had Eminem come through on that. Uh, this is before, this is before Slim Shady and all of that. Yeah. 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 You can still see, see that on YouTube. Like if you dial type in YouTube, Eminem wetlands, YouTube, um, I was just reminded the other day, like someone brought up Sublime and I was like, you know, Sublime played at Wetlands twice. The sec- first time they were like second of five on a bill with Skank and Pickle. Um, and then they came back a year later and had totally blown up. And that was April 11th, 96. And then Brad Noel died on May 26th, 96. And then their self-titled album didn't come out till July of that year. Um, so they, he had just been strapped to the rocket ship to start him and uh, was in pretty rough shape that second time around. First time around was an amazing story. Got a minute for it? I've, dude, I've got all the minutes for you. That's why yeah. we're here. So so one day I'm sitting in the basement of, in the office and we knew Skank and Pickle was coming that weekend and we knew they were bringing a bunch of bands with them and one of the bands was called Sublime and their name was on the poster but we hadn't really paid any attention to it. And this would have been, I don't know, February 95, March 95. And the buzzer rang on the on the door. And I was like, yo, who is it? And they're like, it's Sublime. And I was like, uh, you guys are playing here on Sunday. This was a Thursday. And they were like, yeah, we know. But we're just passing through. Can we come in and take a look? So I was like, all right, you know, I'll pull the door. And I pressed a little button for the door to open. And I went upstairs. And it was the three dudes from the band and Brad's dog. And they were inside. And I was like, hey, what's, what's up? And they were like, oh, we played Philly last night. We're playing Boston tomorrow. We had to drive through New York. And then they kind of looked at each other and they were like, you know where we can get some weed? So I was like, oh, yes, of course. I was like, perfect timing, too. So I called one of our security guards, Lance, who was still at home. And I was like, hey, these guys sublime who are playing on Sunday, they need some weed. So I was like, just hang out a couple hours when Lance gets to work like i'll bring you some weed and they were like great so i gave him some beers then i just went back downstairs i was like just hang out you know like make yourselves at home here in the venue and i went downstairs you know went back to work doing whatever i was doing come back up lance shows up he gives them sells them a weed whatever it was at the time and then they left us with a few copies of 40 ounces to freedom wow and by that sunday when they played Everyone in the club was a huge Sublime fan, and we knew every word to every song. And I don't think you could buy a drink. When they played, there was probably like 35 people in the crowd because it was a Sunday matinee show and they were on second. But you couldn't buy a drink during their set because the bartenders and the barbacks and me and even the security guards, we all just walked right up to the front of the stage and just fucking jammed out to them. We were just so excited. And, uh, you know, then they came back a year later. They had, they they had really started to blow up just a little more than a year later, and they could they probably could have played, you know, Roseland or someplace that held thousands of people at that point. And they decided they wanted to play Wetlands because they liked it so much. And uh, yeah, and then then he passed away just a month after that, sadly. It's uh, it's really for me where 
you know, the whole music industry comes to life and is most important. And it's something that I've only just seen and experienced in more recent years, largely thanks to you and your introduction to, you know, Sean Golding. And through Sean, I've gotten on all these tours and I've really gotten to experience, you know, again, thanks to you, the live side a lot more because previously, as you know, my background has always been in the the more kind of press journalistic media end and they're different worlds. They're night and day. And the live side is really where you get to see these artists in their natural habitat. And you must have seen, you know, before shows, after shows, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly and everything in between that comes with all of these bands and their, you know, their crews and entourages and hangers on and everything, right? Yeah, mostly good. Mostly good. I mean, it was, I don't know, I guess you say it was a different time then. There was like less handling of the artists. Like now everybody's got so many interviews to do and the labels, got they, they got commitments. And, and to be honest, a lot of people treat music as a job now, a lot of musicians. And there's not nearly as much partying as there used to be. And I don't even mean that on the, on the, destructive level like it used to just be like a band would come to town they would play our club or you know i also worked at coney island high i worked at knitting factory for a while at cbgb's for a while and the band would just come to new york and after the show be ready to go out and hang out and yeah. just party and go have drinks and now it's like oh well we got to do this and we got to go to this interview and we got to see this person we want to eat at this fancy restaurant and, and it's like it's a, it's just a different era it, it's not better or worse um i mean Ben was better, sure. <laughs> At least, you know, from my point of view, I, I, I just had you. more fun back in those days. But I was also in my twenties too, you know. So like that's that's what I was trying to do. Well, um, I, I love that always like me, you know, you've tried to balance the two and that's why I think people respond to you and want to work with you, is you know, you get the job done and you're professional, but you're you know, you're one of them as well. And you can cut loose and hang out and show them a good time and I mean, are there any memories that spring to mind of doing that taking artists or you know or bands out on the town after shows showing them around any memorable nights of any memorable acts from back in the day uh, yeah i remember taking pusher man out once who were a, a a british band that never went anywhere um <laughs> i remember taking them out they had all this they were on columbia which was also also Oasis's label and this band was supposed to be the next Oasis and Oasis had played their first two ever New York shows at Wetlands. So the label like thought that that launched them in New York. So they brought Pusher Man through and bought all these tickets. And after the gig, one of the guys, one of the they had two lead singers, one of the guys was like, Hey, you know where I can get some, some, uh, cocaine. And I was like, yeah, of course. And made a call and got him some Coke and we did something together. And then we went to this after party. And then one of the handlers from the label came up to me and she was like, whatever you do, these guys are going to ask, probably ask you to score them drugs. They just <laughs> got out of rehab. <laughs> Not under any circumstances. I was just sitting there looking at her like. Too late. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, whatever you say, lady. You know? And uh, unfortunately, that band was never heard from again. Uh, but man, they, they had put an amazing album out, but. Yeah, I remember taking Queens of the Stone Age to Motor City Bar one night, and who was in the band? Who was in the band at that time? Uh, obviously Josh and Nick, and there was this keyboard player that wore a cowboy hat. He played pedal steel and keyboards. I forget his name. It was some weird name like Slick or something like that. I remember spending a bunch of time with. But uh, 
Not, I'd st- I'd not st- Troy Van Leeuwen. No, it wasn't right. him. Um, but I remember stealing a bottle of whiskey from Wetlands and taking it in a Motor City bar and then sitting in a booth in the back and just constantly like refilling our drinks with that bottle so that we wouldn't have to like go up to the bar and pay for drinks. And then that, that night was the, that morning was the worst hangover that I ever had. Uh, well, yeah, those are the things that stand out, but so much, you know, so much of it is such a blur. I'll bet. Every night was a party. Yeah, for years. I'll, I'll bet. And I mean, you mentioned CBGBs a minute ago. You booked the last. Was it how long before it closed? Were you basically brought in to do the last home straight kind of final hoorah run of shows? Yeah, in that the venue? last, the last, basically the last hundred days. It was supposed to be the last three months, and we extended it a little bit so we could fit in the Bad Brains and and uh, Patty Smith, who did three nights of the Bad Brains, and I think it was it was two or three nights of Patty Smith at the very very end. And, um, yeah, I had been putting on a lot of shows at CB's and Hilly, the owner called me in one day. I thought I was in trouble because like I caused a lot of trouble in there. There was one night I rode my motorcycle around inside the club and up onto the stage and we set up a ramp to get it onto the stage. And then I jumped it off the stage. It was like three o'clock in the morning. Um, I'd ridden my motorcycle to CB's and then it was raining, so I couldn't ride it home. So I asked if I could leave it inside, and, and my buddy Josh was like, sure. So I brought it in, and then he was like, do some donuts. So I was like doing donuts on my motorcycle right on the dance floor. And, <laughs> and then I, the next day I came in to get my bike, and I like walked into the back of the club, grabbed it, and then pushed it out. And, and Hilly used to sit at his desk, was right by the front door of the club. And I just pushed it by him, and I said to Hilly, as I pushed it by, I was like, hey, they – Josh let me park my bike in here last night because it was raining. I couldn't drive it home. And he's like, oh, no problem. <laughs> I just pushed out the front door of the club and took off. And uh, another time I stole the Pabst Blue Ribbon sign that was hanging in there. Um, that guy caused a lot. I'm looking at it right now. It still hangs in my apartment. It's one of very few pieces of memorabilia that I hold on to. Amazing. But uh, it was covered in gunk and dirt and cigarette smoke. And I've never washed it off or cleaned it. So it's still... It's still covered in schmutz. Uh, <laughs> like I thought I was in trouble. So the manager of CB's um, called me and said, hey, can you come down here today? Hilly wants to see you. And I was like, I, I'd met Hilly a hundred times. He didn't know my name, couldn't remember me, never really acknowledged me, even though I'd put on tons of big shows there. And uh, I had recent, I had like not long before that, I had done a big show with Joan Jett there. And uh I, I got called in and I thought I was going to the principal's office. I was like, what thing has he found out about that I did? Because there was so many. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I came in and he, you know, he explained that they were going to be closing and that I had a great reputation and everyone at the club loved me and all the shows I did sold out. And I brought in a lot of big time artists and was like, you know, would you like to just take over the calendar until we're done? And the woman who booked it at that point, her name was Louise. She was there. And she she just looked at me approvingly. <laughs> I think I think by that point she was burned out or something and was just like, yeah, please just do it. Like I I don't want to deal anymore. Um, and yeah, I took it over and I, I put on I uh, a lot of a lot of great shows. Not as many great ones as I thought because a lot of people they had done a they had done a save CBs thing a year ago and it didn't a year before that and that's when they got a lot of big bands and that didn't work. Um, uh, 
so so they had kind of like used up a lot of their favors but we did get bad brains and i had a veil open for bad brains one night and the bouncing souls open for them another night which are bands that could have sold out cbs several times on their own um television patty smith dick dale pete yorn we did one night where we had agnostic front sick of it all mad ball chromags um Murphy's Law all on one bill together, which was incredible. Wow. Just, I mean, tons of great shows that, that, that yet again all blur into one. Um, what an amazing piece of history to be a part of and, and such a key part of as well. And are you, whilst you're in the moment, because you're obviously a fan first and foremost, and that remains true to this day, are you tripping out on the position that you're in and thinking, like, yes. how, how yes. lucky, how lucky I was, am I? This yes. is fucking great. Yes, man. Yes. Like I was like, holy shit, Hilly wants me to do this, to book all the last shows at CBGB's. I still kind of don't believe that it was true or I can't really believe that it all happened. Um, And I almost never tell people that because it just seems like far fetched, but it did. (laughs) I mean, it did. And I have all the flyers to prove it. And like all my friends who are around, you know, like it, it happened, but it was, it's pretty incredible. Um, Yeah. That's like how, half my life most of my life like the things i've gotten the opportunity to do like i i don't reflect a lot on individual things that have happened to me that i've that i've gotten the chance to experience but i do oftentimes sit back and and think from where i came from and for for what my upbringing was like the fact that i even like escaped that town and moved to new york city and made something of myself is a huge fucking incredible accomplishment and that's that's kind of like what I look back on, or or like what what I how I sort of frame my life a lot is like, you know, the fact that I'm not didn't become just another casualty, uh, you know, and just end up working in a factory or something like that. I've been able to, like, you know, I don't know, just move to New York and like make a living. And I've been here 26 years and. I've never had a never had a like a straight job outside of working at a music venue. Like when Wetlands closed, I started my own business, and that was Rocks Off, and I started that in two thousand one, and still going to this day. And I've I've like taken gigs working for other people, but never taken an actual job. Like it's always been like like they've hired Rocks Off, they've hired my company. Um, and yeah, that's how I've made a fucking living. That dude, that's so crazy. Like a lot of people started their own, have started their own thing and it worked for a little while and then it led to them getting hired by somebody. And uh, I've avoided that fate. And I, f- I find that to be completely, completely remarkable. Well, you've always um, been an inspiration to me in that regard because that's the exact same quest that I'm on is to remain autonomous and independent and free uh, and continue to earn and make money and do cool stuff, but to do it on your own terms by your own rules yeah. and, and kind There's of, you know, nothing like it, man, nothing like it. Well, it comes at a cost as well. And I think people will look at people like me and you and go, Oh my God, this person's so lucky as if you get to do that. But it's, you know, you've got to put in the work, you've got to sacrifice. It can be a lonely slog sometimes. Um, I want to focus in on the, I guess the launch of all the boat stuff. When you, when you set up rocks off, how do you get the idea to start putting concerts on boats and doing that, which, you know, is something that, you know, present climate excluded continues to happen every summer to this day. Uh, when, when, and how does that begin? I mean, I was managing a band called Rana, um, or just a four piece rock and roll band that 
it didn't really, you know, they, they didn't end up doing much, to put it bluntly. But for a while, they were kind of hot in New York and had sold out Wetlands and sold out CBs and Knitting Factory and the Mercury Lounge. And, and one night I was over walking along the East River and uh, a boat drove by that had a, like a Latin band on it, like some sort of merengue or salsa band. And I was like, I could just hear the music blasting off the boat. And I was like, man, that looks cool. That sounds cool. Well, and I was like, I had been looking for like something different for Rana to do that summer. It was 2002. And I was like, like, man, what if I could, what if they could play on a boat? And of course I knew about the Sex Pistols having played on the barge during the Jubilee and whatever that was, 77, 76, 77, right? And, and 77. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and, uh, you know, I I was like, man, this sounds this this would be so cool. Put Ron on a boat, you know, and and in New York I, at that time, nobody's doing this, no. No, there was something called the um, Circle Line, which was like the big corporate boat company, was doing something called the 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 Blues Cruise, <laughs> but that was like it was like fourth rate fourth rate blues artists for fifth rate people. Yeah, um, and it was all marketed to like you know, people from Connecticut or something, the suburbs, <laughs> like go do that after work with your wife or whatever. And it was, yeah, it was like very expensive and not cool acts. No like cool national touring acts or anything like that. So so I called a bunch of boat companies and, and had a really hard time finding anyone who, who, who would take me seriously. And I, I finally went and like met with this guy who owned one boat at the time. And uh, when I showed up, it was like a really hot day in June or July, sweaty. He was like sanding the outside of his own boat. And his name was Marco Tempesta, an Italian guy from Queens. And, you know, he was like, hey, let, let me get this right. You want to put some people on my fucking boat? Sounds like Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very much like that. And like, I was like, I, when I had finally, when I had called him, I was like, dude, I'll, I'll take a Monday night. I don't care. Any night of the week, I'll fill your boat. I'll sell it out. And, and I told him I would fill the boat. And I, I told him I wanted to charge $20. And he was like, I'll take 10 and you take 10 if you charge 20. And I keep the cash bar. And I was like, fine. I was like in no position to negotiate. Because like most boat companies I was talking to were like, it's $10,000 to rent our boat. They have to put $5,000 down as a deposit. And I'm like, your boat only holds 300 people. Like I would have to charge $40 to even break even without even paying the band. You know, it was like, this doesn't make any sense. In 2002, you couldn't charge $40 for anything. Like $20 was a stretch at that point. But we did the show. And I remember going to Marco before the show happened. Like we put the show on sale. It sold out pretty quickly. And I, I said, Hey man, like, I know you're keeping the bar money, but like if you would bring Pabst blue ribbon beer on board, like, you'll sell a lot of it. And he was like, nobody drinks that. And I was like, trust me. And the boat held 200 people. And I was like, bring, buy 20 cases and a case of beer in America is 24. So it was 480 cans of beer. I was like, buy 20 cases of beer, put it on the boat. Anything you don't sell, I'll buy back from you at your cost. And he was like, hey, that's a good deal. Hey, how can I lose? You know, and I think <laughs> it, it was like 50 cents a can at the time. And he sold it for $3. And before the boat even left the dock with 200 people in it, we had sold those 500 beers. Or of course. 180 beers. And he was like, oh, my God. He came to me. Hey, we're already out of the Pabst Blue Ribbon. And when that night ended, he said to me, he's like, yo, you know any other bands who want to play on my boat? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. 
And I was like, actually, yeah. And I called him a couple of days later and I think I booked the Slackers and Brothers Past and Matt Woody's new Blood Revival and a couple more bands that year. But I called him back and I was like, this time I want a Wednesday night and I take 12 and you take eight of the $20 ticket. And he was like, sure thing, sweet. <laughs> and uh, I worked with him for a long time. He ended up buying more boats. He bought bigger boats. I started doing bigger shows and he ended up selling his boat company and the people who worked for him, who I've stayed in good relationship with. And, and now we do, we do a close to 200 shows every summer on seven different boats. 200. Uh, I didn't realize it was that scale. Wow. Yeah. 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 It's gotten completely out of hand this year. We don't know if we'll do one. Um, yeah, of course. But yeah, it's turned into a whole thing. And I, after a while I stopped doing shows, I didn't stop, but I, I really scaled back doing shows at regular venues and just focused on just the boat cruise season. Yeah. And um, for a couple of reasons, a lot, a lot more venues started opening in New York and it, it was a lot more challenging to be able to be competitive, you know, with all these venues when you don't own the venue or get the bar or anything. Um, so I just started focusing on the boat shows, which I did really well and just started, you know, doing more and more of those. And then I realized like, man, if I, if I don't have shows going on in November, December, January, February, March, I don't need to be in New York. And our season runs pretty much April to October. And around 2012, I started to decide like, man, I can just fuck off for the whole winter and travel and not, not need to be in New York throughout the winter and not need to stress having shows and stuff. So I basically would cut all my shows after Halloween. I stopped doing new year's shows, which was always a big hassle. And just started really expanding my traveling. Um, so that's when you started to design your life in that way. And as you say, you kind of cram it all in and condense it into that peak season, smash out as much shows as possible. And then the rest of the time, as you say, you can kind of just check out and, and go walk about. Yes, exactly. And I spent one, one winter I spent in the first year I was able to do that, I spent the whole winter in California. Then the next year, I spent the whole winter in Botswana. Uh, and then the following year in Thailand and throughout Southeast Asia. And then I ended up uh, moving to London, <laughs> um, where I met you. Of course. Or where we became good friends. Um, and a guy who, used to, who had bought the wetlands after a while opened up the Brooklyn Bowl in London. And... Uh, one year I went over there in 2014, I went there for the 4th of July, which is a big holiday in America. Um, the Brits don't really celebrate that one. Um, that's like celebrating your own divorce, right? I'll like be, I'll be is- celebrating it this year because I'm actually turning <laughs> in, I'm turning in my book on July the 3rd. So oh, amazing. independence day for me this year is going to be the rap party. I'm not sure what I'm going to do for it. Cause there's probably still going to be no pubs open, but I'll certainly be enjoying some Budweiser's in the park. <laughs> <laughs> perfect i love it um i remember w- one day me and my buddy adris who was the gm at the brooklyn bull uh, another new yorker we were living together out there and wherever you call it greenwich and uh on the on the fourth of july we went to the hard rock cafe and had hot dogs and nachos amazing which <laughs> the original one down by the i guess which one of the parks where Park. the, yeah 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 that was the yeah, last yeah, time we i went- saw you wasn't it? it was in hyde park Yes, for the Rancid Hives Green Day show. That was it. That was the last time we had physical, real-life time together 
what a day that was as well. I seem to remember both of us leaving that festival in a pretty fucking heightened state and ending up back at your hotel room where there was just all manner of uppers and downers and <laughs> I, I i might have smuggled some drugs into your country on that trip i might have <laughs> I, um, mi- I miss hanging out with you man it's it seems like it's been a lifetime <laughs> since we got the chance to to tear it up um i want to before we go any further yeah, it's in, only been three years it feels like so much longer than that it feels like so much yeah. longer than that well, before we go well, into, you know what they say matt go on by living a full life you can slow down time there you go. Um, really, because you have so many experiences that you pack in that, you know, when you're lucky enough like me and you to work in this industry and have so many wild, epic adventures, we do, we sometimes can do in a month more than like regular working folks, so to speak, do in a year. Yep. And then when you look back at all that, you think, well, there's no way it's only been three years since. It hasn't even been three years, Matt, since we since that show in Hyde Park. It'll be three years this summer, um, in July. Yeah, time's relative in that way, isn't it? And as you say, yep. I think that sometimes you'll look back and go, "Oh my God, this has only been a few weeks, and I've done all these things." And I've actually <laughs> experienced quite a welcome break in lockdown. Um, you know, it's kind of fucked me on a financial level, but in a kind of spiritual, physical, mental, emotional way it's actually been a really welcome break and a nice breather um from the the chaos and the madness and the the manic frantic pace of uh of my my life same here same here oh man it's been so nice to slow things down and and to be honest i'm not looking at speeding it up anytime soon you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How are you doing in your in yourself since we last spoke? You feeling good? You feeling better Great. than? Yeah, somehow like a million bucks, and yeah, I don't know what it is, man. Like, I don't know. I, I think it's the treatment center I was at, which I'm sure you're going to want to get into, and uh, the, uh, 
you know, the sort of mental breakdown I had and the, and the help I got at the treatment center and the therapy I've been going through and just like learning to be with myself and my own thoughts instead of always being on the run has been life changing in a positive way. Well, when you were living in London and we really got close was obviously when your best friend passed away, Rodney. And it was around that oh, time. Yeah. It was around that time that you started doing the running, running for Rodney, you know, charity work. And I guess, I mean, I don't even know what you would call that, but it was probably your way of championing and celebrating and shining a light on that man's soul and, and character and life, right? And that was your way of trying to keep yeah, his well, spirit alive. Was running every day and tribute to him. And yeah, it started as. I, had, I ran the New York City Marathon in 2015, and that was like beginning of November. And I trained really hard for it because I had run a marathon the previous year in Athens, Greece, and didn't train. And, it, you know, for those of you who aren't in a running, um, a marathon's 26 miles, and my longest training run for the Athens Marathon was nine miles. So I didn't even come close to half the distance. And I went, I flew to Athens and did that marathon. and. I wouldn't say it almost killed me, but I almost died. Um, <laughs> but I, so I did the New York City Marathon a year later, and I really trained hard. And when that ended, I was like, I was planning on going to Thailand for Christmas. And I was like, I want, I'm in such good shape, and this feels so good. I don't want to stop running, but I needed a goal. So I was going to Chiang Mai, Thailand, and I looked up marathons in Thailand and the Chiang Mai marathon was happening on December 20th or 21st and I was getting there on the 17th so I was like I'm gonna run the Chiang Mai marathon which I did and it that felt great to do that and I didn't want to stop running so I was I was like I'm gonna run three miles every day in January to kick off the new year and I had read about this like online challenge called three for 31 and it was like you run three miles for the first 31 days of the year and it's just to like, you know, kick off a good habit, like a New Year's resolution. So I did that. And then on January 12th is when Rodney died. He was my best friend, longtime best friend. And he passed away. And I was like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to run. I pretty quickly decided I was going to run three miles every day that year. But I didn't want to, like, say that out loud. And, but I decided, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go a hundred days. And I started calling it running for Rodney. And I was just like putting some silly hashtags on Twitter and Facebook. and like, Hey, I had another great run today. You know, thought about Rodney the whole time. And then after, you know, two months, 50, 60 days or something, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this every day and I'm going to announce it. And I'm going to use this as a way to remember Rodney. And then after a few more months, I set up a scholarship fund in his name at Berkeley, Berkeley College of Music, which is one of the premier music schools in America. Uh, Juilliard is kind of the premier, but that's more for like performing arts, whereas is Berkeley is more for contemporary music. Um, John Mayer went to Berkeley. Uh, but so I did this whole running for Rodney thing. And yeah, I did. I ran three miles every day for 366 days. It was a leap year. And <laughs> of course it was. Yeah. Raised over $20,000 for this scholarship fund that is, that is set up at Berkeley. And, uh, the university named a dorm room after him with a big plaque outside that says the, the Rodney speed room, which is, <laughs> which is hilarious to me. Cause the kids who live in that room, I'm sure Google him and are, are quite confused as to how this prestigious institution is a room named after Rodney. But, but that, that was, that was a remarkable year. 
Um, and just and- such a testament to your unique, and I mean unique in the best possible way, unique <laughs> character. Like you really are, you know, like me times a thousand, just an all or nothing guy. And, you know, when, you, when you put, when you put your mind to something, you don't mess about, you don't half ass it. And, you know, that whole year, I remember just being so blown away by your commitment to that. And it was obviously your way of trying to process losing him as well right as being positive and and you know raising the money in in memory of him and and exercising and doing good things with the time and the energy it was i guess also about your way of moving through that and past it and trying to process the pain right for sure most of it was trying to process the pain um and i i didn't even realize that at the time i just thought i was dealing with the pain fine um but i was really i think I was putting it off by coming up with these other things and remembering him and making these videos every week and, and talking about him and, and just keeping his memory alive. I, I think all that effort to keep his memory alive was, was a part of me refusing to process that he had died. Well, we, um, we talked not, about it the other day. That at the time. We talked about it the other day. Well, it was a couple of few weeks ago now on the phone, didn't we? You, you literally yeah. were running away from your problems, literally. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought I was running towards a solution, but I was running away from my problems. And, and that all kind of, um, that became clear. Like I moved away from London at the end of 2016. Um, literally the, the last day of 2016 was the last day of the Brooklyn bowl in London, which is why I had moved over there. And, uh, then I, I moved back to New York to America and I went back to rocks off and 2017 was okay getting back into the swing of my own business and then and running it every day. I'd kept it, kept it going while I lived in London. Then 2018 got a little rough. And then the end of 2018, I, or the fall of 2018, I, I flew to California. I bought a motorcycle out there, decided I was going to spend the winter there and did and had a, had a good time. I was riding out to Joshua tree a lot down to Mexico, like through the Sequoias, um, through Yosemite, I crashed a motorcycle in Yosemite. That was pretty good. Had a really bad accident. Um, uh, and then spring of 2019, I was in LA. It was March, and I, you know I should have known at that point that I was still was like reeling. I think from the death of Rodney, from the death of a few other close friends, and then this guitar player named Dick Dale, who I'd become super close with, and it would sort of acted as my surrogate dad um i met him i put on my first show with him in 99 at wetlands and we became quite close and i spent a lot of the 2000s uh on the phone with him just talking to him being his bud flying out to california staying on his ranch um outside of joshua tree and he he, you know he really did take on the role of a surrogate dad and then he, he he got cancer in 2000 15 I think and was battling it quite well but then I knew he was I knew he was ill and uh I you know I I had seen him a couple months before and he just I could tell he wasn't right um we'd had dinner at the cheesecake factory oddly enough in in, uh Palm Palm Desert California right outside of Palm Springs you know I uh I got the news one day I was in LA 
and uh, I got the news that he had passed away, which I was kind of expecting. But even when you're expecting it, it hits you hard. And uh, I got the news. I got up from where I was. I rode my motorcycle to the airport. I flew to New York, and I I lost it. Um, and I had been struggling with massive amounts of depression for for years at that point. And I flew to New York. I got fucked up on the flight. I got fucked up when I landed. I barely kept it together enough to like be part of the cat convention that I was putting on, which was all, oh uh, God, we'll, you know, we'll do that on another episode of the podcast. But I, I had created a cat, cat convention for cat lovers. Uh, was that so with I, one of the I, guys from the Bouncing Souls? Yeah. DJ Values. Yeah. Who was like an auxiliary member. Well, not one of the founding members, but, but yeah, we, we started this cat convention called Catsbury Park. And, um, but anyway, I, I, I managed to get through that barely. Him and Janie, our other partner, she picked up all my weight. But I got through that, and then I got – I basically put my house in order, literally. I, like, donated all sorts of things to charity. I left my house. I never thought I would come back. I flew back out to California. I got my motorcycle, and I just was committed to dying. And I thought that I was going to – I very much thought that I was going to kill myself. I was getting on the motorcycle to ride until, until I either found some, some crazy sort of divine inspiration that would make me want to live or until I ran out of money. That was my entire thought process it was like, fuck it. I don't see any more reason to live. I don't give a fuck. I don't care about anything. Dick's dead. Rodney's dead. I don't have anything in this world. I don't have any friends. Nobody really loves me. I'm a burden to all my friends. I thought all of those sort of cliched things. And I got on my bike and I rode and I rode fucking over 10,000 miles between that May and October of 2019. Most of it without a helmet on at fucking high speeds. I got in fist fights with cowboys in Wyoming and Montana. I was picking fights. I was drinking too much. I was sleeping with dangerous women. I fucking stole a car in Aspen on the 4th of July. I stole a fucking pickup truck. Just you, to get home. You text me I that was, night. You said you'd been to see the White Stripes or the Raconteurs or something. <laughs> yeah, I'd gone to see the Raconteurs and I couldn't get a taxi on the way out. I tried hitchhiking to the hotel I was staying at. And uh, yeah, I ended up stealing a delivery vehicle from a restaurant in Aspen. But it's like, I don't know how I didn't fucking kill myself through all that time. I don't know how I didn't kill myself, didn't get arrested, didn't get killed with these dangerous situations I was putting myself in. I was riding off-road on this motorcycle in places that were super dangerous. I crashed off-road a bunch of times and always managed to get the bike back up somehow. I don't, I don't know how, like looking back, I don't know how it happened, uh, like how I didn't die because I fucking wanted to. And in my head, every day riding that bike, man, I was looking, I was looking over the shoulder of the road trying to find a place. I was actively seeking out like a place with a sharp turn on a cliff where I could ride my motorcycle off the edge of the cliff because I, I couldn't bear the thought of my friends knowing that I killed myself and having them be upset. Then I thought about, I thought about hanging myself in hotel rooms. And then I thought I can't, the maid is going to have to find me. That's going to traumatize her. I thought about riding my motorcycle into an oncoming fucking 18 wheeler tractor trailer truck. But I thought about how that would traumatize the guy behind the wheel and in retrospect, now I realize that's proud of my caring personality is that I didn't want to inconvenience anybody else with my death. Your generosity um, of spirit saved you. Yeah, I guess. And then even at the end, man, I, I fucking, 
I was riding and one day I woke up, I was in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, this beautiful, gorgeous mountain lake town. And I woke up and I just, something snapped. I wasn't out of money. I wasn't at the end of like wanting to try to have fun. I, I would try to have fun at night. I would go out to bars and to be honest, I wasn't even drinking that much because I had lost the desire to like get loaded and have fun. I think that's when I started picking fights. Like that was exciting. Like the act of a physical confrontation was exciting and was the only thing that would really get my blood going. But I woke up this one morning and I was like, that's it. And I fucking rode to the airport in Spokane, Washington, which is about 45 minutes away. And I got a one-way ticket to Las Vegas and I just left my fucking motorcycle in the parking garage. I didn't even take my helmet with me. I just fucking flew to Vegas, checked into a hotel, the Cosmopolitan, because I knew they had high floors with balconies. And a couple nights in, I walked out to the balcony and I leaned over the edge. And <laughs> I can't believe I'm even saying this without, I'm saying it so objectively mm-hmm. because I, I can't even put myself there again because I, I, I guess, I, you know, I guess I've recovered, but there is a lot of emotional heft to this. But I, I leaned over the balcony, feet off the ground, ready to go. And then something stopped me. And I was like, you know what? I'm here in Vegas. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to have as much fun as I can afford to have with the money I have left. And then I'm going to kill myself. And I think I went to see Aerosmith a couple nights after that. Then I saw Gwen Stefani and Journey and Penn and & Teller. And I just went to every show I could go to and every day would just hide in my hotel room with the blankets over my head. I, I turned my phone off by this point. Nobody knew where I was. I was going to say, are you, are you completely off the grid this whole time? And everybody's kind of like, where is this guy? He's missing in action. Completely. It turned out no one knew where I was, so no one could get in touch with me. Um, so there was no, there were no messages. There were no concerned messages getting through to me. Turns out, of course, afterwards, like people were freaking the fuck out. I then find out. But this went on for three weeks. And every night I would literally teeter my whole body off the side of that balcony and just pray that I could get the fucking courage to fall over the edge. And uh, I never did. And, and one day after three weeks of doing that and just crying in my room and uncontrollable sobbing, there were nights I went and walked out on the strip just crying. People must have thought I was fucking crazy person. And, you know, they were right. Um, and then finally, one day I called my friend Backyard Bill. Or I think I sent him a Twitter message from my laptop because I had, I had also deleted my email client and deleted the text message app off my laptop. My phone was in the safe. I hadn't turned it on for two weeks. Like I deleted the text message app because I didn't even want to see any messages. So I sent Bill a message via Twitter and told him where I was and that I was going to kill myself that night because um, I, I hoped and thought I would. And then this was like noon or something. And then I went back up to my room and then the police knocked the door down and I somehow talked my way out of being taken to a mental institution and a friend when they found out where I was, another friend, Peter Shapiro, got on a plane from New York and came and got me. And uh, I ended up, between him and a couple other friends, I ended up, and through the charity Music Cares, thankfully for them, my friends called Music Cares and explained what was going on, and they put me on the phone with a counselor from Music Cares, and she asked what was happening and asked if I had like suffered uh, a loss recently and I started telling her about 
sick and about Rodney and about my own father and about Larry Block, another guy who was instrumental in my life and about how they had all died and how I had been feeling. And then they were, she was like, would you be willing to go somewhere um, for 30 days? So I ended up going, I got on a plane the next morning to a treatment center in Florida called the guest house, which was uh, a place for people who were, basically people with people with problems severe problems with anxiety and depression um and it was it was also it had an element of substance abuse stuff to it but it was it was the type of place where when you went to rehab and you got clean and that that wasn't enough when you needed more help that they you would end up at the guest house and so i was there with basically a bunch of other like suicidal dysfunctional mentally unstable people um who were also looking for help and getting it um and it was the greatest thing i could have ever done i had never done therapy before um i got there two days after i got there like they kept me in alone and sequestered to kind of stabilize me um and then they put you kind of out into general population and the first day in general population i did this thing called the walk of life where you tell your story over two hours and from childhood on and all this shit came out that i'd never told anybody about that i had forgotten about sexual abuse i had dealt with and fucking crying and snots and you couldn't believe it and uh that was it that was like talk about all or nothing personalities like they asked if anyone wanted to volunteer to do the walk of life that day and looking back i should have known the whole rest of the room these 20 strangers everybody clammed up and i raised my hand and the the therapist was like are you sure usually people wait until they've been here for a while and i was like yeah why not like i'm here right (laughs) i'm just kind of like fucking if i'm here i'm gonna dive in and i did that and you know i spent 60 days there and transformed my life and i got out of there with this incredible will to live um that hasn't subsided and i'm fucking lucky that i did that because i got out of there december 23rd and you know i i started working i i slowly worked my way back into booking the cruise season for the year and things were about to really pick up we had major laser as the kickoff of the season really big group it was supposed to be march 14th and march 12th that kind of shut down new york city and america and dude if i hadn't done all that work on myself and all that time i can't i came home from the treatment center i was doing therapy three times a day got into transcendental meditation yoga like really taking care of myself, cooking for myself every day, which is something I've never done in my whole life before. But I really just, I committed to the slow down pace of life and I stayed at home most days and just, I spent a lot of time with myself and and thinking and doing introspection. And that's something I had avoided my whole life. And that fast pace of life was to avoid having to deal with my issues. Um, and which just gave me more and more issues and they fucking compound. But if I hadn't been through that treatment center and, and we had been hit with this pandemic, I surely would have killed myself already. And and the great byproduct is I I don't drink or take any sort of drugs anymore. Um, which I hadn't really been at the point. I certainly have addictive qualities of my personality. I am an addict. I wasn't drinking all the time or taking drugs all the time, but 
I was addicted to my depression. I was addicted to unsafe sex. I was addicted to food. It's like I'm always, I, there was always something there to fill this void with. And now I don't take drugs. I don't have unsafe sex. I don't fucking drink alcohol. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, I've, I've, I've worked very hard and I continue to work very hard to try to lead a positive, healthy, balanced life. And it feeds on itself. Like, I, I try not to let the negativity in. And if it comes in, I, I, I'll let it in. I'll process it and, and then let it flow back out like the fucking tide or something. That I, re I refuse to be a victim anymore. Like I'm, I've lost any hostility I had to the people who've done things in, in my past. You know, like I had written that song, Forgive and Remember, years ago for, for my band White Collar Crime. And you know, that, that it's true. Like I remember, but I don't really hang on to it. It's like, you know what? I'll forgive and I'll remember, but so you, I'm not going to let you do it again. That's what I'm going to remember. Forgive and forget seems stupid to me. Like, don't forget, own that shit. Cause it, it is what makes you who you are. So I haven't forgotten anything that's happened to me. It, much the opposite. I'm remembering a lot of things and, and like letting them back in and being like, all right, I, I survived that. Um, and and just owning that, I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I've, I've found some sort of peace within myself and not every day is great. Far from it. Some days really fucking suck, but I refuse to be a victim of myself anymore and of my own brain and my own mind. And, you know, every day is a new fucking day. Uh, you know, last night I, I barely slept last night. I woke up this morning. I read this terrible news, but now I'm on the phone with you. This is great. I'm going to go to Coney Island later. I'm going to put my feet in the fucking ocean and then I'm going to go back out and protest. And I'm afraid to go back out and protest again tonight because I'm afraid of the emotional heft that it carried, but I'm more afraid not to because it's, it's an important thing that's going on in our lives and in, in the universe right now. And I'm going to go back out and it might make me feel lousy, but then I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to find another thing that's going to make me feel good. And I'm going to focus on the things that make me feel good and not be afraid of the things that might make me feel bad. You've always been an inspiration to me, Jake, and you're somebody that has nothing. You know, you have obviously had your struggles to deal with, but for me, you've always been a person who has nothing but love and light and, and hope and positivity to share. And it's during these times that the world, and I don't say this lightly, the world, you know, needs people like you. We need you around. And I want to backtrack on something real quick because this for me is such an amazing example of why you're such a special guy is, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this, you told me on the phone a few weeks back when we spoke that after 30 days in the, the treatment center, you were due to go because you couldn't afford to stay there any longer because the fees in those places are obviously high. And the people who run the place were like, no, um, we want you to stay another month and we're going to pay for that just so you're here because you're a great presence in this facility. And when you were telling me that, I was like, of course, that's you mm -hmm. through and through, like the fucking mascot of the place, brighten up everyone's day. And that, that, that just about broke my heart and made me so proud to know you as a person. Incredible. Thanks, man. They made me promise that I wouldn't tell anybody that. Because, <laughs> you know, these places are for-profit institutions. And uh, they were like, you can't tell anyone. <laughs> I'm crying and laughing at the same time. But, yeah, it's fucking funny. And, um, you know, like, yeah, they, they let me stay for free because I was already such a bright light to the rest of the community, which, you know, doesn't surprise me either. 
Um, it, it's yeah, I I've been generous a lot in my life with you know financially sure, but that's easy. But I I think I've been emo- uh, generous emotionally and spiritually to the people around me, sometimes to the detriment to myself because I put other people's emotional well-being ahead of my own and, and tried to help people. But, you know, it, it, things come back when you need them to come back, man. I didn't need it before. And I, I needed it in that moment when I was down there in Florida. And they came to me and said, we want you to stay. Like my therapist one day, she said, I think you should consider staying an extra 30 days. <laughs> I don't think you're going to be able to get through what you need to in in thirty in the 30 days that you're here. And this was like two weeks in. And I broke down and started crying to her. And I was like, I know I need more help. And I know I'm not going to be ready to leave after a month. But but uh, uh, that's all I can afford at. I, I, can't, I can't afford to stay here for 60 days. And, you know, she said, well, let me see what I can do about that. And went to the owner. And then they came back to me two days later. But, you know, it just in that time I was there, the first weekend I was there, my therapist took, like, she's like, okay, I'm leaving for the weekend. But here's some assignments I want you to do. And she gave me seven assignments and write a letter to your 12 year old self, like write a letter to your mother. There were all these writing assignments that you're supposed to do to help you process your feelings and emotions. And she came back after her two days off and I had done six of the seven assignments. And, uh, you know, I showed her at our next meeting. She's like, Oh, did you do an assignment? I was like, what? Yeah, I did almost all of them. I just, you know, couldn't get, get to this one. And she looked at me funny. And she was like, those seven assignments were supposed to, like, I didn't think you'd get through them in your whole 30 days here, much less your first week, <laughs> weekend. <laughs> and I was like, well, give me more. I was like, because I'm here to fucking work. Like, I'm not here to watch TV, not here to listen to fucking podcasts. I'm here to process whatever the fuck I can so that when I get out of here, I have the best chance I can of survival. Because um, that's what it was. You know, I, I, I went in there fully trying to kill myself before I got there. And, you know, I had a, I had a talk the other day with our mutual friend, Ginger Wildheart. And, uh, you know, he, he's not well right now. And, uh, you know, all it takes is to look at his fucking Twitter to see that, you know, I'm not saying anything he hasn't said publicly, but he's struggling with his own depression and, and asked how I was doing. And we've been going back and forth since I got out of treatment. And uh, he said something that dawned on me in a way that all the treatment and introspection hadn't. And, and you know, he said, it wasn't that you couldn't kill yourself. It, it was that you shouldn't. And you finally figured that out. And we're still trying to figure out who told you that. And we know it wasn't Jesus. <laughs> I got a laugh out of the Jesus part. But really what struck me was that I hadn't thought about it in that way before. I had just thought about it and like, yeah, I just couldn't do it. So I guess, I guess I just couldn't. So I guess I'm going to have to live. That's kind of been my outlook up until just this past Monday, six days ago, he told me that. And it fucking hit me like a ton of bricks in such a positive way. Because for the first time I realized like, right, it wasn't that I couldn't. It was that I shouldn't. Like there's, there's more shit I have to do here. That kind of, it's kind of can come off as corny that like the world needs me, but the world needs me. And it does. maybe not the whole world, but the little portion of it that I occupy and my friends, they need me. And I, you know, I need them too, but I had never really considered anybody needing me before. 
until he said that, and it, it all fucking kind of like came came to a head and made a lot of sense to me. Well, but sometimes, here. sometimes Jake, not all heroes wear capes. <sighs> sometimes they wear unicorn onesies too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, one of my friends sent me a unicorn onesie in, down to the treatment center, and I was like, oh, I was so at home. I, I wore it almost every day. <laughs> a 46-year-old man in a unicorn onesie, but, you know. Hey, I was I was still processing what happened to me as a child, so really, I'm still a child. So it's okay to wear that shit. <laughs> I want to talk. Um, we'll we'll start to wrap things up, see, man. This has been fucking beautiful. Yeah, we better. I I can't imagine anybody <laughs> still listening to this. Shit, oh man, man they'll like, be they'll be all in for a week. <laughs> they'll be all in on this. This has been a long time coming as well, man. But I feel like this exact moment feels this feels perfectly right to me. Um, I want to talk about what you've been doing recently because um, obviously, you know, you work in the live industry and like everybody else who does, you've had your income severely impacted and hit. And, you know, obviously now hearing what you've been through, it's obvious that mentally you've got the tools and you're in a good place to be able to deal with the, the kind of defeat that might come with territory like the lockdown situation. But obviously the financial reality is you need to adapt and hustle to make money. And I've been really lucky that I've been given this book opportunity and you've been doing what you do in these situations as well. When the chips are down is like reinventing, you know, how do I then kind of adapt to this new situation? And you've again, in classic Jake Snufnarowski fashion, you've come up with this, the, the 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 largest kind of range of face masks I think is available in the known world. Um, they're all, <laughs> they're all available via the Rocksoft website, and I mean, there's there's designs on there from like crackhead teeth to like Mardi Gras beads to there's like a Johnny Thunders thing. I mean, there there's literally hundreds and hundreds of these designs, isn't there? When did that idea yeah. come to you? You obviously realized I need to come up with a new way to make money. What made you go to the masks? Yeah. Huh. Everybody needs the only them. thing. The only thing that kind of kept me sane through all this was like the, the cruise season was going to be my financial salvation. Yeah. You know, I had, I had not blown all my money, but I was down to like literally just over a thousand bucks when I got out of the treatment center and a uh, few friends helped me out here and there. And I started booking shows and, and I had a couple shows that were in the books that happened. We had one with Tim Barry, one with Mike Farris, a couple others made some money and was like just squeaking by. And that's what made me start cooking for myself. Like I literally, I couldn't afford to fucking get a coffee. I was so concerned with every dollar, which was weird for me because ever since I started making money, I never thought about how much I spent on anything. Yeah. Like I just didn't need to. And, you know, I had money saved and I was doing fine. Like fine enough to me, the whole definition of success was like, I don't, I don't care what things cost. I, I didn't have a lot of money, but I wasn't like, if I wanted to eat at a restaurant, I would go eat and like, okay, well, I'll pay that bill. And then I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll make the money back somehow. Um, and when the whole cruise season went to shit, I was like, well, now I'm really fucked. Cause now I literally have no money. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And, um, I just kept telling myself, like, don't panic. You'll come up with something. And I kept trying to think of things and I was like, I could try this. And I, I had a box of Rodney running for Rodney t-shirts and I like went to Facebook and was like, Hey, who wants to buy a shirt? And I think three people bought them. And I was like, okay, that's not going to work. And then I, I love to write and blog and, and I wrote on Facebook like, Hey, I'll write a, 
I'll write a fictional story about the character of your choosing, you know, for $20. Nobody took me up on that. I'm like coming up with these stupid ideas. But I'm like, maybe something. But I just kept saying to myself, you'll come up with something. You'll come up with something. And then I had this idea. I was like, man, people need some face masks. And the company I make all my T-shirts through, it's a print-on-demand company called Threadless, which means you come up with the designs and they print them as needed. So you don't have to print 50 or 100 copies of a T-shirt and worry about whether or not you sell them. You just come up with the design and they print it as people buy it. You know, with they have good new printing technology that it, it actually creates it creates a quality garment. And I got an email that they were doing face masks, and face masks were hard to come by at that point. And then I was like, man, we could come up with some cool designs. So I came up with a cheeseburger design, like <laughs> to make it look like as if your mouth was stuffed full with a cheeseburger. And <laughs> what's the picture uh, you posted the other day? Is it like of a blow up doll's mouth or something <laughs> with you wearing one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of the early ones. Was like the mouth of a blow up doll, and then a ball gag in the mouth, and um. The, the teeth of the meth head from the Tiger King series. <laughs> and uh, like I just posted them to my Facebook as a goof one day. I went out for a walk. I was like, I think I put up five designs. And I was like, ah, maybe someone will buy a face mask. And, you know, like like with a lot of the stupid shit I come up with, it's the things I don't think will connect that do. Yeah. And, the, you know, the things I do think like, yeah, I'll sell all these Rodney t-shirts. No one wants one. But I was like, ah, I'll put up these stupid face masks. And, you know, maybe a couple of my friends will buy one. And uh, I went out for a walk and came back a couple hours later and we had sold five or six. And then I was like, man, I'm going to come up, put up some more designs. And I put up more designs. And then Monday I sent out an email blast to the whole Rocks Off email list. We sold like 150 of them that day. And then I did, then it was just on. I was like, all right, I'm on to something here. And, you know, I, it, it's been fun to come up with the designs and cool to do the marketing for them. And, and my friend Phil, who I was in the band Tragedy with for a long time, he recorded. I asked him to record. He's got a great home recording setup. So I was like, will you record a version of the Ramones beat on the brat, but change the words to put on the mask? And he did. And then me and my other buddy, Eddie Eyeball, went up to Times Square and shot a bunch of video and unicorn suits with guitars. And we released a music video to promote the masks. And things have been going pretty well. And we sold over 3,000 masks. And wow. They're really, they're great quality. And... You know, sorry if I sound like a shill, but they are great quality. They're like, you know, they're not suffocating. Um, Hopefully I'll be able to attest to that next week when mine arrives. I can't wait for mine to get here so I can sport it and, you know, I'll share a picture of me in it and hopefully people can can see what it looks like on. And I mean, the the, the designs themselves are just, they're so like heartwarming and hilarious. And again, I think in these kind of times that we're in, which are so dark and desperate and depressing and challenging and infuriating and saddening in so many ways, we need these little, you know, whether it's a meme on the internet or a, a novelty face mask, like these little moments of joy and comedy are really, I think, what can actually make a huge difference to people's days in these trying I mean, times. But, it is the little things, yeah. isn't it? I think especially if you're going to be forced to wear a mask, you know, if you got to go into a shop or something like, might as well, like yesterday I was wearing around the one that's the lower half of Lemmy's face with the mole and the mustache and everything. <laughs> and like, People just see it, they look at it, and they smile. And even if they're wearing a mask, you can see their eyes light up in a smile. And it's like, man, we need everybody needs more reasons to smile right now. 
Yeah, you're spreading from, you're spreading joy without having to say or do anything, which is great. And as you say, people just see it, acknowledge it, smile. That brightens up their day, if only for a moment. Yeah, man, it's kind of fucking magical. <laughs> you know, it's, I thought it's such a cool thing to have been able to do, and you know, hopefully they'll keep selling it. I'll make a few more books because honestly, I don't know when we'll be able to do another show again, a concert. And yeah. Well, if I think not- of that in the long term, it'll give me anxiety and depression. But <laughs> yeah. I just like every day is like another day to try to find something to enjoy. Well, I'll put a link to the site in the episode description for this podcast. And also, in addition to the masks, um, I mean, some of the T-shirt designs that you've got going on as well, all the Tiger King and Carol Baskin ones, genius and inspired and hilarious. Uh, and is that all on the same site that's all on the rocks off threadless yep yes yeah so you just go to rocksoff.com um yeah you find all that shit it's whatever people will find it when yeah put it in the description yeah um thank you i like our t-shirts you know the fucking white people shirt is is has been a big seller this week. I posted it on Friday with sort of an unhinged rant because that's when the protests started going down. But yeah. that fucking white people shirt is one I made ten years ago, and it kind of comes in and out of fashion, uh, and unfortunately seems to sell the most when in times of distress. Yeah, well, but, uh, there's a there's a famous picture. Of, well, famous might be the wrong word, but there's there's fairly uh, iconic pictures on the internet of Matt from the Bronx wearing that shirt at various shows over the years. And I didn't actually realize yeah. it was your design until you told me many years later, but it always brought a smile to my face, like having a white person wear that T-shirt. You know, I think that it underlines the, you know, the need to recognize that, you know, as you say, there's inherent problems, uh, particularly in America, but here in the UK as well, with fucking racist white people. And it's just, I, I think, a tongue-in-cheek, funny way of highlighting that issue. Um, again, and making people think, but also bringing a smile to their face as well. Well, that's that's the point. Um, come over to New York for Independence Day. I'll give you one. <laughs> there we go. If I can, I will. And next year, right. we, we were talking about this. Uh, it'll have to be next year now, but I really do hope that we get to do some live Q&As together, um, you know, with, with Jesse Leach, with Jesse Malin, with Keith Buckley. There's a lot of people who I'm looking to do Q&As with in the future that are all, you know, based in or around New York. And maybe we could do a little East Coast book launch party for my new book, you know, with, with you at some point in the hopefully not too distant future as well, even if it's just something small and people are socially distanced while I do a reading with one of the guests from it or something, we can maybe look into that. 100%, Mr. Stocks. Final thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go and dip your feet in uh, the ocean in Coney Island is, can we end on the Kid Rock story? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> Just because it's so out of the fucking ordinary and hilarious. Okay. Well, let's see. My friend and benefactor, Peter Shapiro, uh, produced a 3D film um, of U2 in concert. It was filmed in soccer stadiums down in South America. And it was kind of like the first big 3D concert film. I think they shot it in 2005 and 2006. And it was making its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival at the Grand Palais Theater on the Saturday night at 8 p.m. And he had this whole thing set up where U2 was going to make a surprise appearance and play a concert on the red carpet on the stairs of the 
the Grand Theater. And it's like a big fucking deal, right? To have your movie premiere there in such a impressive fashion. And about a week before the festival, he called me up and said, hey, my wife's pregnant with our second child. She was supposed to be my date to the premiere of the YouTube film. She's bailing. I have a ticket for you, but you got to get yourself to con. And I was like, all right, yeah, cool. No problem. Yeah, I'm fucking there. So I try to book a, I try to book a ticket and trying to get a flight to con during the film festival on a week's notice is next to impossible. So I end up booking a ticket to Milan and I was like, well, I'll just take a train and I'll figure it out. So I take an overnight flight to Milan, land, and I decide I'm not going to take a train. I'm going to rent a motorcycle. I don't know how to rent a motorcycle. This is before iPhones. So I land and I call my office and I had an assistant at the time, little Nikki, little Nikki Sienna, a little Italian boy. And I said, I'm in Milan. I just got off the plane. I'm going to take a train to the center of the city. I need you to find me a motorcycle rental place that has a bike for this many days, preferably a <laughs> And He was like, all right. Got to the train station, went to another payphone, called him. I had, a, I had a T-Mobile sidekick device at the time, which did not have international service. So I got to a payphone, called him again, and he was like, yo, here's the address. Flagged down a cab, showed him the address, got to the motorcycle rental place. I didn't have a map. I didn't have anything. I had no way to contact Peter. I just knew that I had to be at the specific hotel to get my ticket to the premiere of the film by 5 p.m. on Saturday. I think it was Tuesday that I landed. So I was like, I got a few days. I can get there. I was like, I just got to get to this this one place to get my ticket. Because if you don't get the ticket, you don't get onto the red carpet and all that kind of stuff. Like, you can't just, like, roll up, you know? It's, like, very tightly secured. So I get on the motorcycle. I ask the guy how to get to Con at the rental place. And he was just kind of like, take this motorway south to Genoa and then make a right and just stay on the coastal road and you'll eventually get there. <laughs> I was like, okay. Got on the bike, fucking hit the road and just like drove slowly along the coastal road, stopping every now and then, just have a glass of wine, have a little sandwich, look at the beach. I was like, this is just heaven, right? This is probably May of 2007. I think that's when the festival was May, June, something like that. All I know is the weather was really nice. And I would just stay at like whatever local motel I found. I ended up like one night I ended up at a bordello and a casino. I had brought a tuxedo too because I needed it. So I felt a little like James Bond. I knew I would need it for the premiere of the film. So like I stayed at this one place one night. This is somewhere, Italy, France. I don't know. I guess, yeah, probably the south of Italy. Like went to this bordello slash whorehouse, had a whole fucking, that was a whole thing in and of itself. You can read about it someday if you want. Too, too much to get into here, but I did write the whole story up on my blog, which has gotten a lot of traction over the years. Um, but then I went to a casino with the tuxedo on. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Then I finally make it to come the day I needed to be there, that Saturday. And there's a traffic jam. And I was like, I could I could kind of see the hotel. I'd ask someone, they're like, oh, yeah, it's way down by the water, the big tall hotel. That's where you're trying to go to get your ticket. So I'm like waiting in this traffic jam trying to get there. And I just keep looking at my watch. Like, I know I'm going to be cutting it close to get there at 5 o'clock. Fucking car hits me from behind on the motorcycle, throws me over the handlebars of the motorcycle. Like, I'm in shock. I'm stunned. I'm moderately hurt. I'm scraped up. I almost have a fist fight with the guy who hit me from behind. Finally, though, I my senses prevailed. It's like, 
I just had this singular focus. I got to fucking get to the hotel to get my ticket. I finally get there. I get into the hotel. I find the room I need to go to to get the tickets. I get the tickets. I kind of like break down from the shock, start crying. These beautiful women tend to me. It was like, you know, <laughs> looking back, I was like, this is great. But they're like, oh, we'll get you some water. Oh, hey, you know, hey, rub your shoulders a little. And then finally I get to Peter's hotel, you know, and he's got his tuxedo on about to go to the premiere. And I show up and he's like, where have you been? Oh my God, I didn't know if you were going to make it. I give him the whole story. He's like, holy shit. So we finally, we go to the pre-party, which is right on the side of the red carpet. We end up, I meet this girl who dances at the Moulin Rouge in Paris. I don't know how she ended up getting into this party, but she ends up being like my date for the night. We walk on the red carpet together. It's fucking wonderful. You two comes out and plays. The movie gets a standing ovation. I'm like, man, this is like, yeah, this is just the life. So afterwards, Peter's like, you want to go to, there's an after party. It's very exclusive. No, you can't bring this girl with you. Okay, cool. The dancer from the Moulin Rouge, that'll leave her behind. No problem. I'll find another one, right? <laughs> we go to this after party and we go in and you two's over in the corner and Keith Richards is there. And I see they're on one side of this little exclusive club and there are tons of people outside trying to get in. It was almost like a movie with paparazzi and all that. We've taken a limo to get there from the, from the movie theater. And then I look over to the right and Kid Rock is there. And I was like, oh my God, it's Kid Rock. And I knew Peter knew Kid Rock from another movie he had made. And I was like, dude, just one, just introduce me to Kid Rock. I don't care. I don't want to meet Bono. I don't want to meet the Edge. I don't want to even meet Kid Richard. I don't give a fuck. I just want to meet Kid Rock. <laughs> so he introduced me. He says, hey, Bob, this is my friend Jake, blah, 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 blah. And I sit down. We just start talking. We're shooting this shit for about an hour. And then finally he, he says something like, oh, what do you do? Blah, blah. And I never kind of really gave an indication that I knew he was Kid Rock at that point. But on the inside, I'm like, oh my God, I fuck him up this guy. Because this is pre-Kid Rock being a racist redneck hillbilly, right? Yeah. I don't think he's racist. Just, you know. I, Republican. I, yeah, exactly. Piece of shit. Republican. <laughs> however you want to call it. But, but yeah, someone who was not kind to those less fortunate than themselves, which almost just as bad as being a racist, to be honest. So, but this is before all that, so I don't feel bad about it at all. And after a while, he said, oh, what did you, what's the name of your company? And I said, oh, it's Rock Sauce. You know, I told him I was a, a concert promoter. And he's like, oh, like the Rolling Stones song. And I said, no, more like I got to get my rocks off because my Wranglers won't fit unless my cock's off, which was a line from his first album, The Polyfuse Method, which was put out independently way before his devil was out of cause and all that shit. Very few people knew about that album. And he looked at me, he was like, how the, that's, how do you know the Polyfuse method? I was like, man, I'm a huge Kid Rock fan. How else do I fucking know? And he was like, get out of here. And he started laughing. He was like, put his arm around me. He was like, you and me, we're going to hang out all night. Next thing I know, Misha Barton comes over. We're all doing cocaine together. That party wraps up. We end up going to his yacht. He had rented this huge yacht. We get there and it's like James Blunt, Jessica Simpson. Jessica Simpson's in a bathrobe. I'm taking selfies with her. I'm like, this is fucking great. We're doing more and more cocaine. Finally, the sun rises. We're in the hot tub. I've got this great picture, like the Kid Rock took of me and Peter in the hot tub. I got shirtless pictures, me and Kid Rock, and him pointing at my unicorn fucking adult in tattoo. And like, it was just a great, great night of a party. Sun comes up though. Me and Peter get a cab back to his hotel. I'm still like, I, you know, I can barely fucking stand up, but I sleep for like an hour get on the motorcycle, which is, by the way, all banged up from the crash. The, the, the turn signals are broken. One of the mirrors is snapped off, but 
I kind of picked up the glass parts and put them all together. But I get up and get out of there because I got to get this bike back to Milan by like the following Tuesday. And I just get on the road and start driving. You know, I should not, I was probably legally drunk at the time. I probably shouldn't even have left the hotel. But I somehow make it back to Milan. I remember it was the fastest I've ever gone on a motorcycle was that last day. It was 200 kilometers per hour, which is like 135 miles per hour. That was the fastest I had gone up to that point, but just trying to get it back. And I remember I finally found the motorcycle rental place at like two minutes to closing. Got the bike back, got to the airport, got home, and then wrote the whole thing up a few weeks later. And uh, it just went viral on my blog and got published in a, uh, like got republished a bunch of times by different people over the years. And, and it turned into like kind of the story that I've been known for, for better or worse. <laughs> and uh, I remember one of my friends said, does your mother read your blog? And I was like, well, no, of course not. He's like, oh, thank goodness. I can't imagine what would happen if she read that story about you and Kid Rock and what you did in the bordello with that prostitute. And I was like, well, I didn't say she didn't know the story. She doesn't have the internet. I printed it out. I mailed it to her. (laughs) And the look on his face was priceless. Like, I can't believe you. So I was like, yeah, I I guess the moral of the story is like, got nothing to hide, you know? That's it, man. If you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. And I'm slightly apprehensive about my mum, not so much my dad, but more my mum reading this book when I bring that out, because there's going to be some stuff in there that she'll finally read and, and learn about and go, ooh, but it'll be cool. And as you say, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, if the all cards are on the table, then, you know, you've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to fear. So hey, ho- hopefully your, she'll appreciate it. No, not at all. Nah, I've, she'll my be mom fine. Is, and I used I used to tell her I'm just as God made me. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse, baby. <sighs> exactly. Dude, what a fun talk, man. This has been so, so great to, you know, just connect again properly um, and, Thanks, sh- and share Doc. your story with everybody. And thank you for sharing so generously and openly. I hope you, uh, um, I hope you got something positive out of it as well, man. Of course. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it, I haven't been talking quite you know, too honestly and openly with people about my time in, in treatment and not because I'm afraid to or don't want to. It's just that, you know, I talked with a bunch of friends about it when I got out of treatment, but then I started gravitating towards people who, who didn't know I'd been in treatment. A lot of my friends still don't know, and I'm sure some will listen to this podcast and find out. But after a little while, I was like, I don't want the focus of my in-person talks and relationships with people to be about that. Like I went through that. I dealt with it. Yeah. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to talk about it every day. I don't want people asking me questions about it or looking at me like, are you okay? It's like, yeah, I'm okay. I just want to be a, a normal person, but uh, I'm happy you got me to talk about it today because it's, it's certainly important for me to remember all this shit that I went through recently. And that, you know, fucking eight months ago, seven months ago, whatever it is now, October 22nd, I was actively trying to kill myself and thought that there was no hope or reason to live. And now I'm, I'm in one of the most challenging times of our, that our generation has ever faced as humans. And, uh, and I can't wait to wake up every day and, and live for one more day. Because there's always hope of a better tomorrow, right? Even in the worst of times. Well, yeah, man, if especially things, in the yeah. worst of times, there's always hope that the next day or, you know, a day soon from now, things are going to be better. And, you know, things might get worse, too, but you've got to open yourself to the idea of a possibility that things can get better. And you got to you got to keep that that hope open. You know, don't give up. 
I love you, Jake Snufnarowski. I love you too, Matt Stocks. That was fucking killer. Thank you. Well, I'm packing up my game and I'm going head out west Where real women come equipped with scripts and fake press Find a nest in the hills, chill like Flint Buy an old drop top, find a spot to pimp Then I'm a kid, rock it up and down your block Go with a bottle of scotch and watch lots of crotch Buy a yacht with a flag saying chill in the most Then rock that bitch up and down the coast Give a toast to the sun, drink with the stars Get thrown in the mix and tossed out of you wanna, I wanna roam, find Motown, telling fools to come back home, start an escort service for all the right reasons, and set up shop at the top of Four Seasons, Kid Rock and I'm the real McCoy, and I'm headed out west, sucker, because I wanna be a cowboy, baby, with a top left Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.